Hey guys, welcome to the premiere episode of The Oxford Comment, brought to you from the New York offices of Oxford University Press. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michelle. Today we're talking about booze. Yes, booze, liquor, beer, the sauce, alcohol, moonshine, spirits. I'm running out of synonyms. Toddies. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, Remind me, where did we get this idea? So, I was in Boston, standing in the shadow of a giant statue of Samuel Adams, and a guy in a Red Sox hat comes up, points to the statue, and goes, lush. And so I got to wondering, was this true? Is Samuel Adams, statesman, political philosopher, founding father, a drunk? So, being the good Oxford employees that we are, we turn to one of our own with this query, Benjamin Karp. He is professor of history at Tufts University and author of Rebels Rising, Cities and the American Revolution. Ben, thanks for being here. Tell us, is it true? Um, I don't think Samuel Adams was any more of a drunk than any of his friends. Um, I think Samuel Adams was probably known to most of his peers as kind of a dour old Puritan most of the time. So I think uh, he did not necessarily have the reputation of a lush. There were people in Boston who had the reputation of being real drunks, but I don't think Samuel Adams was one of them. But it is true, on the other hand, that any 18th century adult male that we looked at would probably strike us as someone who drank a lot compared to what we're used to drinking today, because they were much more used to drinking as part of their daily life, as part of their meals, as part of their workday. And so I don't think there's any reason to single out Samuel Adams, uh, except that he happens to be on the label of a lot of beer now. So all our founding fathers were big drinkers. Yeah, George Washington, you know, had ordered porter from England and was known to like that. Um, You know, Jefferson was famous for having a fantastic wine cellar. Um, You know, all of the the founders drank to one degree or another. John Hancock was a wine merchant. Um, You know, so yeah, a lot of the, the recognizable names are people who we can associate with either trading in alcohol or certainly consuming alcohol uh, to the extent that we, um, you know, have their papers and, you know, know what kinds of things they were buying and selling. So Benjamin Franklin was a brilliant guy. He invented so many wonderful things. Uh, He wrote Poor Richard's Almanac. So I wouldn't think he would be a heavy drinker, right? But he has what today we would call a beer belly. I'm I'm not sure I'm getting this 100% right, but he was critical of a rival of his that he knew that was drinking beer all the time. And so he um, tried to kind of uh, not follow that example and be a little bit soberer in his uh, his workday. But at the same time, Benjamin Franklin loved company, loved being sociable, definitely was at the tavern drinking rum punch, drinking wine. Uh, You know, I think he loved good food and good drink, and that was probably what, uh, what contributed to his portliness later in life. But he was also uh, very physically strong throughout his life. He was a great swimmer in an era where not everyone could swim. And um, so he was he was a pretty healthy guy, too. You said he liked rum punch. Is this what most people were drinking? Or was it beer? What was the beverage of choice? Um, for the most part, the big story of the 18th century is, well, if you were really fancy, you would drink wine, port or Madeira or something else from Portugal or the wine islands, the Azores, etc. Um, but the ordinary person was mostly drinking rum. Rum was, you know, distilled from molasses. You got it from the Caribbean. You could get it for, you know, relatively cheap. Um, and that was the, the the hard liquor that most people could use to kind of get drunk very fast. And the place where they would do it, where they would drink toasts to one another, they would drink bumper toast, which meant a glass filled to the brim, um, where they would have contests to see who could drink the most before they fell under the table. That All that stuff was going on in the tavern. This sounds like every college party I've 
ever been to. Yeah, well, um, uh, learned guys uh, getting together uh, would get together in taverns to discuss philosophy, and they would have a glass of wine for sure. So, um, and college students were drinking quite a bit as well. So alcohol was stimulating political discussion. Taverns were bringing people together. Was alcohol necessary for the revolution to get started? Oh, absolutely. I think it plays a big part. I mean, that's one of the things I talk about in uh, in Rebels Rising is that in uh, in New York, I, I focus on New York City taverns in particular. And without the ability for the Sons of Liberty to get together in a tavern and plan how they were going to resist the Stamp Act or the Tea Act, uh, it's not clear where else they would have been able to get together. And the great thing about a tavern, it was the kind of place where anyone could wander off the street. And as long as you could afford a drink, you could sit down there and, and possibly be part of that conversation. Whereas most other places in colonial America were a little bit more hierarchical. But the tavern was a place where the rich and the middle class could get together. Um, and, and that alliance then becomes crucial in the cities uh, for planning the, the resistance that then turned into the American Revolution. Are any of these taverns still around today? Well, New York City still has Francis Tavern. Um, it's kind of three buildings later from the, at least, from the one, uh, the, the Francis Tavern that was originally there that George Washington was in, etc. But uh, places like that or the City Tavern in Philadelphia are places where you can go and get an 18th century style tavern meal. There are places in Colonial Williamsburg where you can do that um, and you can taste, you know, something approximating what an 18th century rum punch would have tasted like and some of the concoctions are pretty good. All right, Ben, final thoughts. What should our listeners take away from what we've learned here? I mean, what I like to talk about in uh, in my chapter on taverns in Rebels Rising is that um, alcohol involves both order and disorder. You know, you wanted people to kind of get together for orderly meetings and, you know, they would be clubs with all these bizarre rules. And so that was a way to get really good political organizing done. But alcohol, of course, also involves disorder, right? People get drunk, they get sloppy, they get into fights. Um, all sorts of bad, crazy things can happen. So that's kind of both the exciting thing and also the scary thing um, about both alcohol and the revolution. And that's what, that is why they end up going hand in hand. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Again, that was Benjamin Karp, author of Rebels Rising, Cities and the American Revolution. Uh, Lauren, I'm a bit thirsty. Well, that was the sound of Michelle leaving, probably just getting some water from the kitchen. No, I can see her. She's sprinting. And yeah, she just disappeared into the elevator banks. So it looks like she's completely um, left the building. Uh, I heard, okay, so I heard this joke the other day. Um, A man is driving down the highway and in the trunk of his car. And Michelle, welcome back. You would return in the middle of an awesome joke. Sorry, sorry. So I went to the Brooklyn Brewery. And you've, you've been gone less than 30 seconds. Lawrence is podcast time. Anyways, Touché. I was in the elevator. I ran into Grace and Max. They are two editors that are working on a book called The Oxford Companion to Beer, which is coming out next fall. And they had a business meeting at the Brooklyn Brewery, so they asked me to join, and I tagged along. Brooklyn Brewery is a pretty pretty good time. You can, you know, they have that big beer hall inside. Right, right. So you order pizza, play cards. Um, if you can't get a seat, you sit on those big stacks of uh, barley. Yeah, it's a pretty happening place on the weekend. Did you maybe bring back any audio for our podcast here? Oh, oh, yes, I did. One sec. That's... Is that the sound of audio and zipping? Wonderful. <laughs> Here we go. How long is the tour going to go for? 
Um, I don't know. I mean, it's a private tour, so if we're lucky, quite a while, but he may want to actually get to work. I think the Brooklyn Brewery uh, beers are known, especially the more um, specialty beers they come out with, for being really high uh, alcohol content. Th this, this could devolve. <laughs> <laughs> when we enter the Brooklyn Brewery, we are welcomed with an air-conditioned breeze and the pungent scent of yeast and malt. Everyone here is in work mode now. Well, except for Monster, the brewery cat who we catch slinking around the giant fermentation vessels. But in a few short hours, work will stop for the weekend, and the space will be packed for Friday night happy hour. There will be young people, craft beer lovers, and babies. Babies in a brewery. You know, there are a lot of parents bring their kids. They bring even baby carriages. People bring in dogs. I mean, they really, I think, feel very at home here, and I, I think that's great. You know, the beer garden used to be the main entertainment for people, you know, in the old days, uh, before television, etc. And it was the family place as well, and I think that it's not incompatible for a brewery as long as... That's the brewmaster, Garrett Oliver. He and his team of brewers make 24,000 kegs every year. Garrett knows pretty much everything there is to know about the beers they make here and about the history of the brewery itself. Well, Brooklyn Brewery started in 1987, uh, a partnership between Steve Hindy, who's still CEO, and Tom Potter. And Steve was AP bureau chief in Beirut. Uh, he was sitting behind Anwar Sadat when he was shot. He was in the middle of a lot of the conflicts and stuff in, in the Middle East. And in those days, all the reporters actually made their own beer in their apartments when they were stationed in places like Saudi Arabia where you couldn't have any alcohol. And Steve kind of got familiar with, uh, with home brewing then, got back to the United States in the mid-80s and said, well, you know, we made some flavorful, tasty beers when I was overseas. What's this stuff? And we only had Budweiser, Coors, Miller, and decided that, you know, he just didn't want to drink that. Started making his own beer at home with his upstairs neighbor, Tom, who was a commercial banker. And eventually they got the idea to quit their jobs and, 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 and go start Brooklyn Brewery. I mean, over the years, I've come up with about 70 different, you know, different beers. I now have the other brewers involved in the process, so we'll actually get together and just basically bounce a bunch of ideas around. And you know, some of them are fairly outlandish. Like last year, we did a beer called the Manhattan Project, uh, which was uh, the one we worked on with uh, Dave Wondrich from Esquire. Basically, it was a recreation of a Manhattan done as a beer. So you know, the Manhattan is is rye whiskey, sweet vermouth, and bitters and usually with a cherry. So this was basically a rye beer aged in Rittenhouse rye barrels and then infused with all of the various botanicals that go into vermouth and bitters. And it literally tasted just like a Manhattan. I, I really liked that one. Um, it was the hardest to make beer we ever did though. Before we go on, Garrett offers us one of those specialty drinks Max was talking about in our way here. I end up getting the Buzz Bomb, which is actually an old style medieval drink called a braggot. It's 30% wildflower honey, and locavores, you'll be happy to know it all comes from a local producer. I know honey in a beer might sound weird, but Garrett sees it in a different way. I know that, uh, I mean, we live strangely in a country where rather than put 30 calories worth of sugar into your coffee, people will actually put chemicals that have a warning that they might give you cancer in order to avoid 30 calories. You know, so I, I'd rather stick to things that are real. Um, 
and you know a lot of the uh, a lot of the light beers are made with all kinds of artificial enzymes and whatever else to drive down this calorie count. Where the point of what we're doing is supposed to be pleasure. Um, now, nobody ever asks like how many calories are in wine ever. Wine and beer per serving have almost exactly the same amount of calories. Generally speaking, wine is slightly more. So, what are the health benefits of beer? Well, aside from the fact that even the Surgeon General says that you'll live longer if you have a beer every day or two beers every day than if you don't. Oh, yes. Teetotalers are very unhealthy people. (laughs) It's probably the misery, uh, you know, which causes stress. So there's that benefit. If you have a re-fermentation in the bottle, uh, as this does, you also have the benefit of the yeast, uh, which is at the bottom of the bottle. And actually, in this bottle, you can see what it looks like, you know, here, kind of clear. After Garrett sells us on the health benefits of beer, we go check out his favorite place in the whole brewery, the Barrel Room. Here, we see firsthand that the flavor of one beer can be years in the making. So, just watch your, ba- watch your backs. Four people. <laughs> so, this is the Barrel Room. Uh, as you might know, bourbon uh, is always uh, aged in American oak, and those American oak barrels can only be used once to age bourbon whiskey uh, by law. So uh, the minimum time uh, in barrels, I think, is three years. You see these have the fill dates on them. So this was originally filled with Woodford Reserve whiskey on, uh, on the 1st of May 2002. Uh, uh, will just have been emptied uh, you know, only a very short uh, time ago and came directly to us within a matter of days. And then you know, we'll fill them. And we get the flavors not only from the wood, but obviously a little bit uh, from the, the whiskey that was previously uh, in there. And why is this your favorite room? Oh, the smell. I mean, uh, it's just a, you know, it's a wonderful aroma. The main things you get out of American oak are compounds that would remind you of vanilla and remind you of coconut. So you might be able to pick up some of uh, each of those. Then there are some other characteristics that we just associate with wood. I mean, it smells like somebody cutting, you know, any kind of, of wood. And, uh, and there are flavors also that come out of the whiskey. So it's a pretty complex set of flavors that you're going to get. And now, the question I know you've been dying to ask. How do I become a brewmaster? Uh, These days, it's reverted to being a lot more like cooking, where there are many different routes uh, to becoming uh, a brewmaster, the same way there are many routes to becoming a chef. You can go to cooking school, or like somebody like Mario Batali, you can go and apprentice in a number of kitchens and work your way up, uh, which is the way that I did. I did. I apprenticed to an English brewmaster. Uh, but you could also go to brewing schools not only in this country, but you know there are many well-known ones in Scotland, in Germany, uh, etc. My head of quality control uh, is Dr. Klupp. He has a you know a PhD in uh, in brewing science, um, and you can certainly go do that. Um, and uh, it has its useful ends as well. You know there are different ways to do it. So if I want to work at the Brooklyn Brewery, what do I need to do? Oh, I mean, uh, well, if you wanted to come work in the brew house, you know, we would want to know what your technical background was in it, whether you had done it, uh, you know, before the things that you knew, etc. You get you get asked questions that you would not otherwise get asked in an interview, like you know, what are your favorite beers? Where you know, where have you been? You know, what what places do you go to uh, check out beers? And we look at your interest in food. Do people drink on the job? Do they uh, drink at all? Do you know? Do you have any rules against that? Well, I you know I I, I taste beer, but uh, you know, well as you guys have seen today, uh, when you're working, you can't really 
start drinking. <laughs> Unfortunately, even at lunch, you know, we don't, uh, you know, we don't really drink beer. But I mean, there are times that nine o'clock in the morning, yeah, we're tasting things. Um, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, no buzz till the end of the day. <laughs> is that the motto here? Yeah, I'm afraid. So, well, it's, it's not, I, would, I wouldn't call that the motto, but it is uh, true. Well, Michelle, it seems like you had a fantastic time at the Brooklyn Brewery. So, you know, thanks a lot for not inviting me. Well, you can read the book when it comes out. Fantastic. Uh, well, we're nearing the end of the first episode of the Oxford Comment, but we're not there yet. If you like what we're doing, review us on iTunes. Or if you have comments or suggestions, you can write to us at blog at oup.com. And a special thanks to Benjamin Karp, Paul Harrington, Max Sinsheimer, Grace Labatt, Garrett Oliver and the Brooklyn Brewery, and the Ben Daniels Band, the official band of the Oxford Comment. Until next time, you can keep up with us at blog.oup.com. Additional information about the books discussed, authors interviewed, and places visited will be up on the blog uh, along with a lot of other great articles and posts. You can also follow us on Twitter, OUP Blog USA. Um, Lauren, shall we recap what we learned today? I certainly learned that, you know, you never take me anywhere anymore. Well, I learned that Benjamin Franklin was a fantastic swimmer and that honey in a beer is really good. John, what did you learn? If you don't want to be miserable, then don't be a teetotaler. <laughs>